0: hello and welcome back to book chat the monthly books podcast hosted by pandora sykes and me bobby palmer it's exactly as it sounds we each bring a book and we chat but the books do have to be more than two years old
1: should we tell the listeners how many times you've done that introduction
0: (laughs) just just the 15 yeah
1: No need to fork out for a hardback with book chat, dust the books off from your bookshelf, buy them second hand or borrow them from your local library.
0: That's what we're all about.
1: Ever since we said that we liked hearing from listeners outside the UK, we've had some lovely emails from listeners outside the UK. Shout out to Amy and Sydney who just finished Eleanor Catton's Burnham Wood and is now on to Rebecca Mackay's new one I've got that actually I must have a look and to Brandy listening in Sao Paulo Brazil who says that if she was recommending someone read an older book it would be Anything by Laurie Colwyn did she write Home Cooking that's ringing a bell
0: I don't know I actually have never heard the name but I'm going to check her out now book chat is going global that's nice to hear Um, and and (laughs) this does lead me nicely onto my next question which is Pandora What are you reading right now?
1: I'm reading Burning Questions by Margaret Atwood. It's her essay collection that came out last year. It's essays and talks and lectures and after-dinner speeches from 2004 to 2021. There's some really great bits in there. She's very funny, particularly on the role of the writer and how they shouldn't be. No one should look to the writer for (laughs) any kind of moral judgments about the world. But I'm in a big Margaret Atwood reading place at the moment because I'm interviewing her next week, which I'm really excited about.
0: Oh my God, that is so cool. I'm really jealous of that. You should read Oryx and Crake, which is one of the weirdest books I've ever read, but also brilliant.
1: She's written over 50 books, so there's going to be a limit to...
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you got, what, like four, 45 more to read in the next week? Yeah. I, I'm bringing a proof to the table this time, actually. Uh, I'm actually bringing two proofs to the table. Um, I'm proverbially between them. Uh, I love... I love when you hear about a book coming out and you go, that sounds like nothing I've ever read before. And I've had that twice recently with with two books that have sort of caught my eye. They're both by American authors. I think they're both out in July. One of them is called Girlfriend on Mars by Deborah Willis. And it's about a guy whose girlfriend dumps him to move to Mars with like a Elon Musk type figure. Oh my gosh, and I it- love that. <laughs> wait, 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 until you- wait until this one. Uh, Open Throat by Henry Hoke, which is about a queer mountain lion living in the hills around the Hollywood sign trying to decide whether it wants to eat a person or become one.
1: Come again? <laughs> I don't know if I... Is that is that as weird as it sounds? <laughs> I don't know if I can do that. Maybe I should give it a try. How are you finding it?
0: It's different. And I love... I it, It's got, you know, it, I think it, it gets compared you on You like cover. different.
1: <laughs> I do
0: that sounded that sounded like an insult uh it gets compared on the cover to max porter and it's got a max porter vibe in the way it's told so yeah it's 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 right up my street
1: yes okay and grief is the thing with feathers is a i suppose quite a weird book it is a weird book it It is a weird
0: book but in like the best possible way yeah and and i think that is a probably a a description that'll come up a couple of times in this in this episode actually
1: (laughs) yeah a weird book this is your spoiler warning warning there are spoilers i do also on a more serious note want to give a warning of sorts that we will be talking about domestic violence in all of its forms all forms of violence um, against women so if that's something that doesn't feel quite right for you please do feel free to skip this episode or come forward and join us for the second half for a visit from the Goon Squad.
0: And the time code for that is
1: 23.30. We're going to kick off with my book, which is When I Hit You by Mina Kandasamy. It came out in 2018 to a great critical reception. It was shortlisted for the Women's Prize, the Jalak Prize, longlisted for the Dylan Thomas. But I am still yet to meet one single person who has read it, apart from you, because I've made you for today. And I want that to change. So here we are. And I'm so glad I picked it for Book Chat because it meant I got to read it all over again. And I loved it just as much as the first time I read it. When I Hit You is about a woman in her mid-twenties in South India who marries a communist university professor who's almost 20 years her senior, who in their four months of marriage subjects her to extreme mental and physical violence and uses his Marxism as a way to justify his abuse. It's devastating, clearly, but it's also f- funny and smart and a brilliantly creative piece of fiction, which I want to come back to because it's based on a real life experience, a a real marriage of hers um, that she first wrote about in 2012. But it also means that many reviewers reviewed it as a memoir, which was intensely frustrating for her.
0: So I, I'd never heard of it either. Um, I, I mean, it's brilliant. I, I it reminded me loads of On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vuong. Um, they're obviously really different books because that one's about the main character's relationship with his mother, about growing up Vietnamese American, about opioid addiction. But the way both books are done is quite strikingly similar. I think they're both they're both. You know, they've both got elements of memoir. They're both written by poets, so they're both told in this beautifully poetic way which slips in and out of styles and genres and is so creative and beguiling. And and it does that with what's frankly quite bleak source material. And this book cycles through, like, so many ways of telling her story, which I just thought was fantastic. So, so what did you particularly love about it?
1: I loved On Earth, we Briefly Gorgeous. I would say I think that's marketed as autofiction, and I just don't think this book was but I think that people like to think that women's fiction is a true story if there's even an, an element of kind of inspiration or a- that's a
0: really good point I actually totally agree with that yeah
1: very different books as you say but yes they're both they were both initially known as poets interesting though isn't it because On Earth were Briefly Gorgeous was hugely successful I mean He's set up, I would say, as a writer for life now, certainly within kind of certain circles. Um, And I just still don't know how well known I think this book is, and I think it should be. But one one of the things, I mean, there's many things, but one of the things I found so powerful about it, when you asked me what I loved, is how much technology was part of this story as old as time, it's very esoteric story about violence against women. It brought this very modern aspect to a story which is and she boils it down to this that a man may rape and hit his wife because he can you know her husband checks her phone she's only allowed to ring her parents and then one day he makes her sit down and this was the most powerful bit for me in the book i think one of the most powerful and he makes her delete her entire email. Crucially, they have moved to Mangalore from Kerala and she's got no friends in Mangalore. She doesn't speak the dialect. Her family are in Chennai. India is obviously a huge place. So it's not like she can travel to see people, uh, especially not with her husband overseeing her every movement and so he not only deletes her ability to socialize he deletes her ability to be a writer to, to have this connection to anyone without email or facebook she says which she also makes her disabled she has no way to promote her writing to connect with other writers and it is an act of career suicide she says and he knows this she writes my husband decides to set me free free of my past free of the burden of memory free of the burden of lost dreams in setting me free she says as he deletes 25600 emails from her gmail he is setting himself free
0: it's such a, a brutally modern form of of isolation because he he literally you know physically takes her away from her friends and family but he does it virtually too and that that's almost worse because it's like he's just erasing her existence and when, when she finally leaves him and and she rejoins Facebook towards the end it's like her friends feel like she's just sort of come back into being
1: it's amazing that because you can't quite believe it or I couldn't quite believe it when you realize that only four months has elapsed so she's been married to him and living in Mangalore for four months and she put up this she says this kind of face saving status on Facebook saying I'm I'm doing this you know wonderful writing project I need to focus so I won't be available so she's lived this entire life I mean, so many lives. And, and we have, reading her story, but actually only four months have elapsed. And a lot of her friends don't even realise she's been gone, let alone what she's gone through.
0: Yeah, and I think that's sort of a, a testament to just how how horrible the the day-to-day is and how long her days are when she's not allowed to do anything.
1: Yes, it's incredibly immersive. And I think one of the things I found so fantastic is... He, her husband is an intellectual man he's a he's a professor at universities he's he's very well known within um Marxist circles it's the first book I've read I'm not saying there aren't other books like that but it's the first book I've read where the abuser goes on these long intellectual tirades about why he is justified as a communist intellectual in abusing her and I think it's a really essential way to read about abuse for us to know that it's not just some thug with his fists he he wears her down with his words as much as he wears her down with his violence. And the narrator really stresses, this doesn't happen to people from, who are just from underprivileged backgrounds or people who somehow seek drama. She writes long before I signed up for communism 101, the marriage course, I led a fairly normal, fairly eventless, fairly middle-class life with very little drama. No starvation, no orphanage, no refugee crisis, no asylum seeking, no incest, no jail term, no ISIS, no jihadi boyfriend, no Tamil tiger husband, no child marriage, no semi-successful suicide attempts, no precocious achievements, no parents undergoing divorce or Unemployment, or affairs, or bankruptcy, and again, I think that just really reinforces this, that this can really happen to anybody.
0: Yeah, his his communism's used really well because he he has this sort of re-education through labour justification to what he's doing to his wife, and he keeps he keeps describing her with like absolute disdain as this petty bourgeois writer, and and it's where the title of the book comes from as well. There's this section where she she says. In this marriage in which I'm beaten, he is the poet. And one of his opening lines of verse reads, When I hit you, comrade Lenin weeps.
1: Yes, all that Marxist justification is fascinating, isn't it? And also so cringeworthy. You think, you ridiculously awful man. And everything's petty bourgeois, isn't it? Depression in women is petty bourgeois. Uh, Wearing makeup is petty bourgeois. Enjoying sex is petty bourgeois. It's he's got these really um, terrifyingly clear, actually, parameters that he will fight to the end about what is and what isn't. And he fights a very good intellectual fight, even when you know it's batshit. And there are also these moments of humanity. Not not many. He doesn't deserve them. You can feel quite clearly the narrator doesn't think he deserves them. But she does have a few asides where she reveals that every time his mother complimented him, he wrote it down in a little pocketbook that he kept in his pocket. I mean... Oh. Jesus.
0: I think I think it's weird because you can't really talk about this book without giving recognition to how funny it is. It uses comedy really, really powerfully. You you open the whole book on this sort of comedic monologue about how the narrator's mum, she keeps spinning this story of her daughter's marriage, which is all about her head lice and her dirty feet, and you have these, these eight furious pages of her mum making it all about her, and that ends with this paragraph. This is how my story of young woman as a runaway daughter became, in effect, the great battle of my mother versus the head lice. And because my mother won this battle, the story was told endlessly, and it soon entered the canon of literature on domestic violence. The Americans had trigger warnings and graphic content cautions attached to the course material, but otherwise it picked up a lot of traction elsewhere. It was taught in gender studies programs, and women of colour discussed it in their reading groups. It was still a little too dirty and disorienting for white feminists, and it was perhaps considered a touch too environmental. Environmentally unfriendly for the eco-feminists, and the postmodernists disregarded it because my mother's telling ignored the crucial concept of my husband's agency to beat me. And even those who forgot the original context of the story or the bad marriage setting always remembered it as a fable about one mother's unending, unconditional, overconditioned love.
1: Unconditional, overconditioned love. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's just it's so well done, and it's it's really funny, and it's really creative, but it's also the whole time crackling with this really sinister undercurrent of, you know, okay, her marriage was so abusive that she had to flee to her parents with her feet destroyed and her hair full of lice. She uses humour to disarm you, basically, but also as, as one of the only weapons within her marriage to survive it, if she has her her humour, her creativity, her writing ability if she can tell her story, it means her husband hasn't broken her.
1: Yeah, I mean, the whole retelling of how her parents told the story is very funny. It's an incredibly good opener to the book and my god as you say her resilience there's one time when they travel to see her husband's parents and he won't let her take her laptop because he doesn't want her to write he doesn't want her to write a piece about sex that she's being commissioned to write and so she taps out the entire article on her old school nokia and then she steals his dongle in order to send it with zero formatting to the editor and you can feel the tension the sweat is trickling down her spine and actually yours reading it as she tries to send the piece before he finds her
0: yeah she's like a she's like a prisoner basically she's she's trapped in in the marriage she's she's trapped in the house and and because of that she resorts to to escapism through writing so it opens like a like a play and there are whole tract of it where she imagines she's a character in a film on a film set and then there are other sections where she's she's writing love letters to these imaginary lovers who aren't her husband which she then immediately deletes before he can see them
1: yes it's it's incredible isn't it she spends most of her day writing and then just before he gets home she deletes everything and it's incredible the the tiny amount of strength that she gets from just being able to write. She can't keep her work, but she can make the work even if she then has to erase it, which of course is just a constant act of erasure for her as a person as well. I love it when she writes about her life as a play. I I don't always love experimental books, actually. You like them more than me, but I love how literary this is. I love that it jumps in forms and ambition and... That kind of writing, I think, is very in keeping with her style from what I've read. Her most recent book, Exquisite Cadavers, such a good title, I want to read that, has one narrative apparently running down the middle of the page of this married couple and then a margin running down the side of every page with sort of stage notes commenting on the action.
0: There's a, That reminds me of a novel called Diary of a Bad Year by J.M. Curtsy that does a really similar thing it's like a diary of this old guy's thoughts but every page is split with like notes at the bottom and then as it goes on you get another section of notes from another character and then another until each page is like in four sections you'd hate it
1: yeah I would you're right <laughs> you know me well <laughs> you,
0: you would like throw it out the window uh, I'm, I mean I'm I'm a sucker for those those sorts of books books which play around with form which play around with genre and I, I, I this one reading it I felt like I was reading a horror story and you know the horror isn't isn't necessarily just her marriage, which is horrible, but it's the fact that everyone around her is sort of complicit in the abuse. It's like she's living in this parallel world. Her, you know, her parents are more worried about the optics of her running away. The neighbors turn a blind eye. Her old friends totally forget about her. There's even this scene with the doctor who sees him, sees her husband trying to force her into a pregnancy she doesn't want. And the doctor compliments her on having such a loving husband. She says that uh, he compliments her on being married to such a devoted doting man the lecturer who takes a long lunch break so that he can be by the side of his wife when she is undergoing an ultrasound of her pelvis
1: and i think there's a temptation by the western reader which she preempts in the text to say well that would never happen here god only in india only in india could they think that domestic abuse is all right and that's why i Love, actually, the afterward written by a Delhi writer called Deepa D, who uses all these examples of abuse that has been normalised um, in Western culture as well. So Marlon Brando, I did not know this, raped his co-star in a film by uh, Bertolucci. I need to look up which that was. So that they could get her actual surprise.
0: God, that is really, really grim.
1: Of course, this is a story that could only be told in India for so many reasons. The way she invokes the caste system, the way she invokes the size of India and how how she can be so disconnected within the same country. And she includes all the phone chats she had with her parents who tell her that marriage is hard and she should try not to irk her husband. The internet is your drug, they say, when she tells them that he's deactivated her Facebook. Your husband is doing this for your own good. And... I want to add that they do encourage her to leave and they then care for her with kindness and her father can't even look at her without crying because he feels so devastated that her husband almost murdered her and he didn't stop it earlier. Um, and I think what's really clear is that it's it's complicated and she's compassionate about that. She knows that they are a product of their culture. They are a product of an India which is in flux, but in some ways is still incredibly esoteric. And that doesn't mean her parents don't love her. So obviously after four months she escapes, but I found it really sad that this was not her immediate salvation. The last kind of 20 pages of the book are her trying to take him to court over her abuse, her asking the college he works at to fire him. Instead, they say they will ask him to resign, which, as she says, doesn't incur any shame for him. He then gets another professorial job. She asks that college why they gave it to him, and they say, well, what happened between them is a personal issue, and it's really frustrating she doesn't get the resolution she hopes for, and even when her article comes out, his comrades try and dismiss her.
0: Yeah, it's such a, an uphill struggle for her, even past the point in which a, a simpler book might have, have given her a, a happy ending when she left the marriage. It feels like even afterwards, the whole world is just weighted against her.
1: I think that's really the power of the book, is that it doesn't have a happy ending, is that not everyone was horrified when she told him about her abuse by no means was it easy for her to get any kind of justice. I think it's a much more realistic story and a much more powerful story that it, it, it's not that kind of Hollywood escape. And the book, without feeling crowbar-y, I think, is a polemic against how endemic a normalized violence against women is. I mean, when he slaps her in the waiting room at the gynecologist and the patients turn their heads, but they think he's just a bit overexcited about having a child. The cultural response in in India also is really interesting and reminded me how strong the caste system is there. It's something that Mina tackles and disseminates in her work a lot. If you follow her on Twitter, you'll see this and in her activism constantly. So when she wrote about her marriage for a magazine called Outlook in 2012, people said that her husband must be a Dalit or a Sri Lankan Tamil or a Christian. They wanted to believe that he was a marginalised man, that such despicable behaviour could only come from someone lower in the caste system, which I think is really fascinating.
0: Normally at this point, I would ask whether you'd change anything, but I I think it's a bit of a moot point with a book like this, isn't it? Because asking if you'd change something that's so raw, that's so personal and that is is in it, you know, at least in part based on the author's own life, it seems a bit wrong.
1: No, I wouldn't change anything. I thought it was sublime. I found the bits at the end when everyone was giving her quite short shrift about trying to get justice, I found that really hard. I guess that could maybe be a bit shorter, but should it be? I mean, I do wish everyone took on its own merits as a work of fiction, not just a hideous story that happened to her in real life. I don't see why they can't be separate things. The best thing I read about the book, instantly. there's not tons, there's um, a couple of critical reviews in The Guardian, there's a couple of interviews with her, but the best thing I read is a piece by Stephanie Sequeer for the Los Angeles Review of Books. And in it, she mentions the inexquisite cadavers, Mina's 2020 book I mentioned earlier, that it says in the preface, by describing when I hit you offhandedly and repeatedly as a memoir, some reviewers were sidestepping the entire artistic edifice on which the work stood and thereby her status as artist and writer itself. And I really, really strongly agree with this because this is not just like a diary of an abusive marriage. It is so much more than that as a piece of literary fiction. The question I have for you, Bobby, because I can't quite tell, is Did you like it?
0: I think that's a really difficult question to answer because it's really well done. It's really well written. But I did, I didn't, I don't think I enjoyed reading it simply because the subject matter was so bleak and it's like so relentless.
1: I'm so fascinated by how different and this happens a lot, which I think is really great, our reading experiences are, because you're right, it is relentless and it is bleak, but I found it really easy to read. I found it engaging and fascinating and yet not remotely a slog. I really want to hear what other people thought. If you've read it, can you email us and let us know, did you find it a relentless slog like Bob, or did you find it an oddly, I don't know if it upbeats the word, pacey pacey an engaging book like me please write to us
0: I, I would say to be fair in that respect i didn't it didn't take me ages and i wasn't struggling to pick it up and I, I i don't want people to think it's a reason not to read the book because i do totally agree with you it felt essential and i think that's a really key thing um and i'm very glad to have read it uh, and I, I really don't think i would have actually picked it up otherwise and i hadn't heard of it before so thank you So I've also got a, uh, a really good one today. I would say that this book has become a cult phenomenon in the 12 or so years since it came out, if it hadn't won the Pulitzer Prize at the time. It's A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan.
1: It's a very good title.
0: Had you heard of Jennifer Egan before?
1: Yes, I had. But, and I'm so baffled by this, but here we are again comforting our own little weird biases and peccadilloes. i thought she was too clever for me i thought it was like cloud atlas and really hard to read but actually it wasn't hard at all to read i raced through it and then i read her short stories emerald city now i'm reading at the same time look at me and candy house i can't get enough of her so thanks bobby
0: you are very welcome so a visit from the goon squad it's made up of 13 chapters or stories or, or sections On the face of it, the whole thing is about a music producer called Benny Salazar, his kleptomaniac assistant, Sasha, and a a coterie of their colleagues, friends, family. It starts with a section about Sasha. Then you have a section on Benny. Then things start to get a little bit weird. You have a section on Benny's teenage bandmate back in the 1980s. Then a section on his mentor, Lou, on safari with his family in the 1970s. Then one on Lou as an elderly man in the 2000s. Benny's wife gets a section, as does Benny's brother-in-law, his wife's old boss, his now grown-up ex-bandmate. It's just completely bonkers. It it disregards time and order. It stretches way into the future and way back into the past over and over and over again until you kind of get dizzy. Sasha is a a good example. You you meet her first as Benny's 20-something PA, then as a wide-eyed college student, then as a lost teenager in Naples, then as a middle-aged mother of two. Uh, and it does that with so many characters. It, it, it like throws their lives into a into a tumble dryer to give you a, a complete, if not really disjointed picture of, of what their entire lives are going to be like.
1: I love that as an expression, throws their lives into a tumble dryer. Yeah, I wondered, and I could be being really naive here, if it's slightly easier to write that rather than having to write a character from cradle to grave and just sort of navigate the boring bits of their life. You get to give these little snapshots in no particular order of these interesting moments that have punctuated them it's basically a collection of interconnected short stories and i think you make it sound like it's harder to read than it is by the way because i am an easily baffled person and i wasn't baffled reading it except and i do this with any book that has a large cast of characters I occasionally went back to the beginning to be like "Ah, it's that Sasha how def, you know how different she seems to me now etc
0: it's like the Haretons and Hindley's and Earnshaws of Wuthering Heights all over again
1: (laughs) yes I mean it's no more confusing than that that said I don't really understand why it's been billed as a novel and I mean the same thing happened with David Solly in the last episode and I wonder is it because short stories are seen as less commercial until very recently, possibly still are? Or does calling them stories dent the overall ambition of the book?
0: See, I disagree with that because I think all that man is, David Siloy, is short stories because they're not Connected, I feel like these are almost too interconnected to be just short stories, but then almost too disjointed to be a novel.
1: I think short stories can be interconnected, though. I love short stories which are connected. Anyway, let's not lose ourselves to pointless debate here.
0: Well, my, the final thing I say is that Jennifer Egan herself has says that she'd call it neither a short story collection or a novel, but she would lean towards novel if pushed. So, um, look, I'm not saying I win, but...
1: Okay, that's interesting.
0: I don't know what I'd call it. And and for me, that's the entire appeal of the book. It's like nothing else I've ever read.
1: What do you love about the book?
0: I read this book a a while ago, and there are two sections since then which have really stuck with me that come to mind when when I think of this book and its huge ambition. So one of them is section six, X's and O's, in which Benny's old bandmate Scotty tries to reconnect with him in middle age. Benny's enormously successful by this point and Scotty is a litter picker who spends his free time fishing in the East River. He turns up to Benny's uh, amazingly plush office with a giant striped bass that he's caught that day wrapped in newspaper and decided to gift to Benny. And it's just this excruciating exploration of how how people change over the years, how they drift apart over time and how awkward and hilarious that, that can be.
1: My God, the fish.
0: You can just, you can just smell it, can't you? And, and there's all these descriptions of it sort of like leaking out of the newspaper while he's waiting in the lobby.
1: Doesn't he throw it at one point or something and the juice like...
0: Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I think he like slaps it on the counter or something like that.
1: I love Scotty's refusal to be embarrassed about that though, to see, to see himself and Benny as the rest of society sees them. So he says, I understood what almost no one else seemed to grasp that there was only an infinitesimal difference, a difference so small that it barely existed, except as a figment of the human imagination between working in a tall green glass building on Park Avenue and collecting litter in a park. In fact, there may have been no difference at all. It's also then so brilliant a few stories later when Scotty is the big guy and Benny has faded, which just shows the butterfly effect of that particular moment with its fish, the way their destinies flip on a coin.
0: You know what? I On re-reading I totally did not make the connection that the, the massively famous musician Scotty Hausman at the end is is the same Scotty and I think that's fish why... Fish guy. I, yeah, fish guy and, and, and that's why I love this book. It's so It's so rich that you can keep going back to it and finding new things. My, my, my favourite bit of all, because I think it's the bit that really gets to the heart of what this novel is about. Uh, well, novel or collection of short stories. This book is about... <laughs> um, Let it go. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, okay. Section 10, Out of Body. Uh, it's about a guy called Rob. You have this throwaway line back in the first section, a few pages into the, the whole book, that there's a photo of Rob in Sasha's apartment. It describes him very briefly as her friend who had drowned in college. Then, about two hundred pages later, you suddenly get this beautiful, immersive section in which you, the reader, become Rob for the duration of the last night of his life. You're in love with Sasha. You're on this drug-fueled night out with her, her boyfriend, future husband, Drew. You both drunkenly decide to swim in the East River where Scotty fishes. Uh, you get pulled out by a current and you drown. This is how that section ends. Help, Drew. As you flail, knowing you're not supposed to panic, panicking will drain your strength, your mind pulls away as it does so easily, so often, without your even noticing sometimes, leaving Robert Freeman Jr. to manage the current alone while you withdraw to the broader landscape, the water and buildings and streets, the avenues like endless hallways, your dorm full of sleeping students, the air thick with their communal breath, You slip through Sasha's open window, floating over the sill lined with artefacts from her travels. A white seashell, a small gold pagoda, a pair of red dice. Her harp in one corner with its small wood stool. She's asleep in her narrow bed, her burned red hair dark against the sheets. You kneel beside her, breathing the familiar smell of Sasha's sleep, whispering into her ear some mix of, I'm sorry and I believe in you, and I'll always be near you, protecting you, and I will never leave you. I'll be curled around your heart for the rest of your life until the water pressing my shoulders and chest crushes me awake and I hear Sasha screaming into my face, fight, fight, fight. God, it's just its just absolutely amazing.
1: Rob is clearly in huge amounts of pain. Drew very much tolerates him as Sasha's best friend. And then, when Rob drowns, it's kind of unclear whether Drew tries to help him. Could he have done more? Was it suicide?
0: You actually get a Drew section in the in the Candy House, which is a sort of sequel, sort of not that Jennifer ah. Regan published last year.
1: Yeah, I'm re- I mean, I'm reading that one at the moment. I, okay, so great. I won't,
0: I won't spoil it. I, I, I digress. Anyway, I, I, I think this section is brilliant because it, it gets to the bottom of what the book is about. As I said, um. Which is that life is fleeting, but more than that, youth is fleeting. Because it's a book about not being young anymore. Really, to, you know, time's moving faster and faster every day. Every little thing that happens has massive ramifications on everything else and everyone else. Like you said, it's it's a butterfly effect book. Really, um, there's a similar bit earlier on with with Lou's son Rolf, who you meet as this awkward little kid on a safari holiday in Kenya with his family, and at the end he's dancing with his sister, and it and it just has this brilliant line that goes. This particular memory is one she'll return to again and again for the rest of her life, long after Rolf has shot himself in the head in their father's house at 28, her brother as a boy, hair slicked flat, eyes sparkling, shyly learning to dance.
1: I feel a bit weird saying this about such a sad bit, but I loved that. I love knowing what happens to characters Typically, novelists refuse to zoom forward and tie that up for a bow for you to track a whole life. And it's often criticized, particularly in screen, it can be seen as lazy. So I loved it when she did that and got away with it. She's amazing at pulling out and giving you these really specific, detailed overviews of so many people, but in a real economy of words. For example, there's this bit near the end, which probably feels quite random but it really exemplifies her ability to do this for me. It's where the character of Alex notes that he loves the dead of night because without the rant of construction and omnipresent choppers, hidden portals of sound open themselves to his ears. The tea kettle whistle and sock-footed thump of Sandra, the single mother who lived in the apartment overhead, a hummingbird thrum that Alex presumed was her teenage son masturbating to his handset in the adjacent room. From the street, a single cough, errant conversational strands, you're asking me to be a different person. And believe it or not, drinking keeps me clean. I just loved how much about so many is evoked in that short paragraph.
0: Yeah, the whole, the whole book has this almost godlike sense of, of you being able to see everyone, you know, e- everyone's lives and how all of, the, all of their lives will pan out from start to finish. It's, it's so big.
1: The thing I love most about it, though, is actually, I think not what you love about it, which is how big it is and how panoramic it is, but it's just how funny it is. It's just the way it's written is the way it makes me laugh. So Mindy says at one point about Cora, Lou's travel agent. She hates Mindy, but Mindy doesn't take it personally. It's structural hatred, a term she's coined herself and is finding highly useful on this trip. A single woman in her 40s who wears high collared shirts to conceal the thready sinews of her neck will structurally despise the 23-year-old girlfriend of a powerful male who not only employs said middle-aged female, but is also paying her way on this trip. (laughs) And you you can tell that Mindy's doing her PhD in... What is anthropology anthropology or (laughs) psychology or something she really reminds me jennifer egan and i i wish i'd had more time to kind of deep dive into this because it would be a dream if they've interviewed each other or done an in conversation but she really reminds me of catherine Heine
0: you really want me to read catherine Heine, don't you I I'm, do. I'm, I'm going to have to uh, yeah I'll, I'll report back um on, on on catherine Heine next time
1: she's excellent and she's got more short stories landing very soon there was one other very funny bit i've just seen um that i want to flag which is about jogging bras <laughs> hold on dave complained about their jog bras which didn't allow enough bounce for his satisfaction. Sammy and I barely listened. That morning when Dave started up, I felt an inclination to speak. You know, Dave, I said, I think that's the point. What's the point? That their breasts don't bounce, I said. It hurts them. That's why they wear the jog bras in the first place. He gave me a wary look. Since when are you the expert? My wife used to jog, I said. Used to? You mean she quit? She quit being my wife. She probably still jogs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's Scotty, isn't it? That's the that's Scott. That's they're fishing in the East River. I think at that moment that that section is so funny.
1: I won't do that thing of just constantly reading out bits. I find really funny, but yeah, she's excellent. I don't need the whole huge plot and all the time crunchingness great as it is i just love the way it's written any reviews you agree or disagree with
0: so uh back in 2019 the the combined staff of entertainment weekly crowned this book the best book of the decade which is a massive massive claim uh i i sort of think they might be right i can't think of many better books from the um the, the tens, the teny, the tennies, the teens, that I've that I've read. I mean, you know, I love stuff like Tin Man, but I think when you're talking about legacy and about books that have made a big impact, you have to focus on ambition and creativity and, and doing something totally new. The only other one that I can think of, actually, from the 2010s, with, with which rivals this in terms of scope, is Girl, Woman, Other by by Bernadine Evaristo. That came out in 2019. This came out in in 2011. So I think they're two pretty good bookends for that for that decade
1: i don't think i think it's the best book of the decade but i need real time to cogitate on on that one i suspect there isn't one single book i could possibly crown for that how do you think it's aged in the 12 years since it came out
0: uh <laughs> there's one specific thing one very specific thing uh, the text speak um in the in the final the future section is just it's so dated I also think I also think that the music industry stuff is very dated because it's all about bands and CDs and stuff like that. But that's intentional. These characters working in the music industry, they're constantly falling behind and trying to keep up and and hopelessly watching as as the, the tide of of, you know, the zeitgeist and 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 sort of what what people are talking about moves on without them. Um, I wanted to play a little bit of, of Jennifer Egan herself talking about that element of the book because it, it really is fascinating. When I was writing the second of what I thought were these freestanding stories, which was about Benny Salazar, the music producer at work, just to write that, I had to interview a music producer at some length. It's very hard to write about people working if you don't know much about what they do. And it was really powerful to speak to him because the conversation, I was interested in technical things, but what kept coming back again and again was that the music industry was just being destroyed by the internet. And there was such a before and after feeling about everything he said and a lot of grief and uncertainty. And so I guess I began to feel like the music industry
1: would be a great lens through which to tell a story about time passing. So can I tell you the bits I found boring? (laughs)
0: Uh, I thought there'd be some. Uh, it is it, a book that takes massive swings, so there were always going to be some misses. I think you know the bit. I'm I'm going to say
1: the PowerPoint presentation. You must the PowerPoint have presentation.
0: To that. Yeah. uh So there's a, Sasha's twelve year old daughter, Allison, is is talking about her life with her family in the desert, but it's done in the form of a PowerPoint presentation
1: that she's created. It's so long. It's like 60 pages. I'm just really surprised a publisher signed off on that many pages.
0: And like I I, you know I love it when a book does weird things when they get creative, but it is my belief that when you have to turn the whole book on its side and read read it (laughs) in PowerPoint presentation form for a long time. Like imagine doing that on the on the train. Like I think when you've done that, you've gone too far and, and you have to be stopped.
1: I skimmed a lot of the presentation. Some bits I did find quite sweet, like when it sort of confronts what she sees as this hidden darkness in her mother and that Sasha tries to hide from Alison. She tries to hide her past in the industry and, and her long struggle with addiction.
0: You were going to tell me what bits you found boring. What do you find boring?
1: Chapter nine, when Jules Jones interviews the celebrity Kitty Jackson, and then he goes to prison for her attempted rape, which he writes about in the piece, sort of in real time. That sounds like it should be really juicy, but I just did not like the way it was written. I didn't like all the footnotes. I just didn't think it was very good that bit.
0: I think it's one of one of a few bits in the book that, that slides a little too far into, into slapstick or farce or, or just totally mm. not being believable. And 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 even when it's really funny, a lot of this book is quite believable. I'd be remiss to say that I didn't like all the really funny bits because I think it's the reason why for a book about the inexorable march of aging and death it's a really fun book to to read which which seems like a strange thing to say.
1: No, it's really funny. And I mean, you know, it's what we were saying a bit earlier about about Mina's book. There's incredible amounts of humor in that. I mean, that is That is the best way to do weighty, isn't It's through the lens of humour. Do you know what it did make me feel though? Is that I wish more books were allowed to experiment like this. I often read reviews where it says quite disparagingly that this bit didn't work or this bit needed an edit. And both are true of this book. There are bits that don't work and there are bits that need an edit but it doesn't mean i didn't really really like it and it just made me wonder why do we demand our books to be perfect why bobby why
0: i do not know bring back big books
1: i do also wonder if she would be allowed quote unquote to publish something like this now do you think those 75 pages would have got through the printer of the powerpoint presentation
0: i th- i think so i think i mean girl woman other only came out a few years ago and that's got a similar sort of structure um and then it you does have not stuff have like, 75 pages of no PowerPoint it, it doesn't it doesn't maybe that bit would wouldn't have got through i i think the fashion now is is for you know slim realistic novels isn't it uh but novels that don't feel too novelly thanks sally rooney
1: well, you've just told me you're reading a book about a queer mountain lion in the Hollywood Hills, so I don't yes, know. Yes, but it's
0: very short. It's very short, and I think that is that is the difference.
1: I mean, I'm not against a, a short book, so I don't mind that trend too much.
0: Don't read Cloud Atlas, then.
1: <laughs> Would you say Goon Squad is classic Jennifer Egan, then?
0: See, it's funny, because I've only read the sequel to this, which is, which is The Candy House. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and that sort of suffers from being another version of the goon squad
1: i haven't read enough of it yet actually to that's interesting because her other books really don't feel anything like this so that's interesting if you think the candy house is trying to replicate
0: the problem I have with Candy House is because it uses a lot of the same characters, but then also does the same tangential thing that that Goon Squad does. Is that I had to have Goon Squad by my side and keep picking it up and almost cross referencing uh, who who kind people. Of a sequel, uh, then. It is a sequel, but then it's it, it's this it's it's the same sort of structure. So it just you know it'll be even more sort of tangential characters from this one. It, it can get quite confusing. I I did I do feel myself having a bit of a headache reading at times. I feel like you're better placed to answer whether Goon Squad's classic Jennifer Egan because you've actually read some of her earlier work, right?
1: Well, because I'm having a sort of eager, an Egan eager binge. The one that I think should really resurface for right now is Look At Me, which was written way back in 2000. And it's about a model who is left very disfigured after a car crash. And when she heals, she looks like someone completely different and it gives her the opportunity to rebirth her identity. But also, which feels just so ahead of its time, it's all about forging a new identity on the internet. So come back to me when I've read that one. And Emerald City, her short stories as well, I think feel noticeably different but also could work so well in Goon Squad there's one that I would love to know what you think of called Sacred Heart about a teenage girl who becomes obsessed with another teenage girl who self-harms I'm basically playing Jennifer Egan catch-up having not read it for a weirdly remiss amount of time
0: well I feel like I need to I need to follow you down that Egan rabbit hole uh given how much I love this book and 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 deem it basically Perfect. I I can't believe I haven't actually read any more of her.
1: Well, come back to me when you've read Look At Me. As we are due a little book chat break, I'll carry on reading Candy House and look at me in tandem at my leisure. Um, So come back to me when you've read Look At Me and let's talk.
0: Thank you, as ever, for listening. Uh, If you want to email us any thoughts, hopes, fears, worries... (laughs) We're at bookchatpod at gmail.com. We're actually going to be taking a mid-year break, so there won't be an episode for June, but we will be back in your ears on the 1st of July.
1: And July's episode will be a battle of the Annies. We'll be talking about Close Range by Annie Proulx and a girl's story by Annie Erno.
0: Book Chat is hosted by Pandora Sykes and Bobby Palmer, with sound by Matt Bentley Viney and production by Pandora Sykes.
1: We will see you in July. Bye-bye.